Hi, friends. Welcome to the Man Overseas podcast. I'm glad you're here. There's a Gallup poll that I was reading yesterday that said in 2018, even as the economy was soaring, more Americans were more stressed, angry, and worried. Asked about their feelings the previous day, 55% said that they had experienced stress. Actually, they said a lot of stress. These numbers topped previous highs. So Americans' emotional state was worse than much of the world. That 55% statistic is one of the worst of the 143 countries surveyed. We actually tied with Greece. And Greece has led the world on this measure every year since 2012. So I thought that was interesting. We've got no stress for you here today. I've got a solid show for you. My guest is someone that I've had in mind to be on the show ever since I started it. He's someone that I knew as a kid. He was probably five or six years older than me. He's someone I really looked up to. He's now a loving husband and father of three. He's also the kind of guy that everyone would want as a buddy. And he was so good to Lady Overseas and I when we visited his home near Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He and his wife, Helen, built a beautiful French architectural style house down there. And they cooked up a fantastic meal with shrimp. And we probably hung out with them for five or six hours. It was just a great day. And we just really enjoyed it. So Southern Hospitality, I can tell you, is alive and well. <laughs> As the owner-CEO of a company called Quality Site Work Material, he is someone who is very focused on helping others realize their potential. He is a true leader. His name is Josh Lusky. So I hope you enjoy. Let me welcome Josh to the show. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be here. Yeah. Glad you could be here. Yeah. Thank you for having me and my wife here. Your house is awesome, dude. I love this place. <laughs> we spent a lot of time designing, and uh, it's it's kind of our dream. So we, we, we're happy to be here, and uh, kids are loving it, and never thought I'd be in a position to, to have a place like this. So we're definitely enjoying it, for sure. Beautiful. And we are in Prairieville, Louisiana right now, which is a suburb of Baton Rouge. And I am so pumped for this, man. We uh, we slept at my mom's house last night and we drove in from Houston. So it's about six hours. And when I got to New Orleans, I was so wired because I knew I was going to be doing this podcast. And so let me tell you why I wanted to have you on. When I was about 11, 12 years old, I played baseball with your brother, Jacob, who we call Snake. And every once in a while, as a kid, you're given an example of someone that you want to be like. And for me, you were one of those guys because you were the, there was a 5A foot, state championship football team in our town. And you were the quarterback at that school in, what was that, 90? Uh, it was actually 90, uh, 89 and 90 seasons. I okay. graduated in 91. Okay. Nice. So I actually went with your family to your, I don't know if it was the only recruiting trip, but I went up to Arkansas Monticello. Wow. Do you remember I, that? I vaguely remember yeah. that now that you mentioned it. Yeah. So <laughs> you were the stud quarterback and um, you were dating like the Cindy Mancini of the town, <laughs> which uh, uh, just made you the man in my eyes. And when you inter when you just interacted with me, that was like, Wow. I just, I just, anyway, I thought you were the man and you were someone that I really looked up to. So for me to get this opportunity, I mean, how many people get the opportunity to chat with somebody that they really admired as a kid and they've gotten to see how they've become a successful adult 
And here we are 25 years later and getting to chat about some really important things. I mean, is this, this is awesome for me. It's really cool for me too. I, I have to say growing up, my brother was, was everything to me as it related to sports. I was, was always trying to teach him what I learned along the way so that he didn't have to face it himself uh, the first time. And, and you were just an extension of, of that, of that uh, team. You, you were one of the, the guys on there. And as I mentioned earlier today, your swing was immaculate. <laughs> so, so we used to look, used to watch your swing and I used to comment about in the stand. So yeah, it's, uh, it's good to, it's good to be here for sure. Very cool. And so did you attend Arkansas Monticello? That's where you went to school? I did indeed. And, uh, and, and while I, while you labeled me as the star quarterback and, and start in the town, you know, it was a humbling experience to, to go to a school like uh, to any college and, and play ball. It wasn't the D1 school, but uh, I, I wanted both an education and the ability to continue my football career. And um, I never thought I would be a pro athlete, but I just wasn't ready to give it up after high school. And, and so I had to walk on actually at Monticello, Arkansas. I visited the school. And uh, I had an academic scholarship there, but I had to walk on the football team. And the humbling experience was when I walked into that school, um, the people that were playing the sport, even at a, a school of that caliber, were, were we were on an even playing field. Mm -hmm. it, I didn't have that any advantage like I did in high school. I wasn't faster. I wasn't stronger. Um, I maybe could argue the the intelligence part. I think I had a, I think I had a little football. It intelligence. was up in the hills. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that's that may be wrong to the school, but but it wasn't about that. It was it was about being able to play the ball, and I was uh, there were better athletes there than I was. So it was definitely a humbling experience to walk into college trying to play football. It doesn't matter what what caliber. What did you study there in school? I was uh, I was interested in medicine, and so I. I immediately uh, found myself leaning toward a biology degree. They had a very good uh, record of getting people into medical school. And so my, my dream at that point was to uh, get a degree in, in biology or biochemistry or, or, or chemistry and turn that into a medical career. Okay, cool. Do you think that you benefited more from the education side of college or the experience of playing college sports? Um, wow. So I, um, I definitely enjoyed biology, but I, you know, in school, in college, the first two years, you're, you're required to take all these generic courses, um, none of which are really uh, particularly interesting. Do you say that you're a CEO or like an entrepreneur? Yeah, I, I definitely entrepreneur. So everybody that that's uh, the general population probably thinks of CEO as the boss. It's, it's a great displeasure to me to, to hear boss in the same sentence with CEO. Um, leader is is a good conversation. Um, boss is not. Mm. I don't want to be the one holding the whip. I want to lead by example. I want uh, I want to propel others into a into a, a successful dimension. I, I want them to understand and explore what, what they're interested in. So leader um, better fits the CEO role than does, than does boss. And um, entrepreneurship is just a love. Uh, there's, there's always the interest, the thrill of business, the, the figuring out of processes and procedures, the um, 
figuring out organizational structure. It's all those things we did when we played sports. Mm-hmm. Those things come back. You know, that there are processes you practice so that you that the processes become second nature. Mm-hmm. And in business, it's the same way. We 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 work to help people get past the obstacles. And that's I think what leadership means to me is to to help others um, succeed. I love what you said there. Yeah. So the practice creates like the muscle memory and the mind is a muscle. The brain is a muscle too, right? And you work it out and, and then you start to create habits that are going to lead to success. So that's quite a a leap though, from biology to entrepreneurship. So I know that you got, you probably gained a lot of leadership skills playing quarterback in high school. Absolutely. But so how does that, how did, how did the transition go from biology to now CEO? What, tell me about the interim there. How does that happen? Wow. So I can tell you a story. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> my, uh, my, my first job getting out of college when I didn't get into medical school after taking the MCAT the first time was in a, in a genetics testing lab. I realized super quickly that the monotony of the, the working in the biology field, at least in the lab setting, was not for me. I couldn't handle four walls. And so I immediately dismissed the, the job um, mm. and found myself looking for something that was more interesting, which ended up being the construction industry, which um, when I showed up every morning, there was a, a different project to work on. There was a, a different task to be done. There were there were people that had to work around me. So we had to rally the troops to get done with whatever production needed to be done that day because you, you estimate construction projects to get a certain amount of work done in a certain day mm-hmm. with a certain amount of of, uh, of personnel. And so I, w- I found that I was able to use my leadership skills that I learned in athletics and transfer them into the construction field. And um, I I thrived in that, in that condition. The problem is that um, it was hot. <laughs> it was hot as shit. You know, you wake up every morning, you're working outside. And so the conditions aren't always great, especially in South Louisiana. So uh, uh, I quickly learned that, you know, if I was going to be in that field, I, I definitely didn't want to be a, a laborer in that field. You know, I had to do something, use my brains to get me to the next level. So, uh, yeah, that's, I guess, back to the question, using using the transition from biology to, to um, the current field I'm in happened through transition, but I, I found that I, I was not happy working within four walls. And then unless I was going to be a doctor practicing every day, that it wasn't going to happen. So I just didn't have the patience to make that, uh, make that a priority. Yeah. And we're sitting in your study and I can see that you've got a ton of books here. I think of entrepreneurs as not just risk takers, but they're always learning. Does that does that describe you? I mean, judging by your books, yes. But talk, tell me about ways that you're always learning. One of my values is devour knowledge. <laughs> and so um, I'm interested in the, the possibility. Um, and by that, I mean, most people have this idea that things, certain things are impossible. And um, let's take the four minute mile, for instance, 
You know, that there was always the thought that nobody could break that. And, and then someone did. And so I, I very much like reading and learning about things that are, that are maybe the impossibilities. Um, I look up there and at the books as we're sitting here and I, I, I'll tell you that I see, I use audible. Um, I don't want to be a, an advocate for audible because there are other opportunities out there or other ways to learn, but I have a lot of windshield time and it's an easy way for me to, to devour that knowledge. Um, I utilize podcasts because I, I enjoy the, the interaction, but if I enjoy a podcast or if I enjoy um, a, an audible book, I purchase the hard copy and almost every time it leads me to another book or to another author or to another interest. And so it may start with um, the idea of uh, some physiology and it leads me to the idea of, well, how can I supercharge my body? If I get rid of sugar, will that work? And so I start reading about keto. And then I realized that there's this four-hour body book by Tim Ferriss. And so <laughs> I, I'll, I'll read that and try to figure out how I can maximize my day or minimize my, my workout to provide the same amount of, of energy or the same amount of takeaway with less hours in it. And so that leads me to some other book or some other study and so it just keeps going i i, I can't stop <laughs> i can't stop yeah you get hyper efficient and and yeah reading always leads to more reading and looking at your books here we have a, a lot of the same in common i see blue ocean strategy rich dad poor dad um, the power of habit i see you've got a book on parenting uh, leonardo da vinci biography. Walter Isaacson is an excellent biographer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do have an audible banner on uh, manoverseas.com. So it's funny you said you don't want to be an advocate or advertise, but anyone who's interested in starting to learn a lot more like on your commute or during your workout, audible is an excellent way to get books because you pay $14.95 a month and you actually get a free book with your membership. So to me, it's a no-brainer. Do you listen at 1x, 1.5x, or 2x? Typically at 1.5. I can sometimes, depending on the um, the person reading the narrator, I can I can sometimes jump it up to two, but but I don't like to get I don't like to get too much above one and a half because I, I want to digest the information. I don't want it to be spit at me so fast I can't concentrate on on what's being said and digested at the same time. Mm. I'll tell you though, on a drive, so I mentioned Audible. There are some times when I just turn off everything on a drive. I don't know if um, if that hits you as well, but sometimes quieting the mind um, is just as helpful as as or just as educational to me than actually listening to to something that provides unknown knowledge. I think that's an excellent point. I think that solitude and even boredom are going away because we can distract ourselves at all times and it's probably making us less creative. I have a theory that if you listen to rap music nowadays, a lot of times they will just repeat the same lines over and over and it makes me yearn for the creativity of Lil Wayne. And <laughs> I think that rappers are probably 
just like any kid nowadays, constantly occupied. And so they don't have time to be creative. But what you're saying is, and I'm this way too, you've got to create solitude. You've got to create time to think. So even if it's on your commute home from work, if that's 20 minutes where you can be alone with your thoughts, that is so valuable and it's it's going away. So uh, yeah, I, and I want to come back to our discussion on books, but there's you, you mentioned the heat down in um, down in South Louisiana, and it reminded me of an article that I read about you. It was in BizNewOrleans.com. So in it, you talk about a forum that has helped you to grow your strengths and support you in your weaknesses. I think you said that the group has has picked you up in your business and in your family life, and that to me sounds like well, it sounds like vulnerability, and it sounds like iron sharpening iron. But what what organization are you talking about in that article? So the organization is Entrepreneurs Organization, EO, as it's known, global organization. Um, most people hear about it or, or belong to it primarily because of business. It's a peer-to-peer network. Um, within the organization, there are smaller groups called forums. And uh, you're meeting with other business people, business owners who have experienced some of the things that you're going through. And so you can learn without having to experience them by getting their experiences shared with you. Mm. Um, it starts with business, it always starts with business in this, in this uh, entrepreneur's organization. What I've found is that it, it leads into family and personal issues. And so what has happened is um, as time has progressed, started with business issues. And I found that if I could work on myself and my personal issues with this group, it made me a better business person. Mm. I wasn't distracted um, with my personal issues. Oftentimes people um, get distracted, so distracted with their personal issues that it affects their business uh, or their work ethic or, or their scheduling. And so it's really, really put a huge concentration on, on my personal life and working on me. And in turn, I've been able to work on my family and work on my business because I've, I've spent the time sharpening myself, working on me. I love that. When I was 23 or so, I attended a conference in Dallas and the, the main guy, the main speaker had us do an exercise where we wrote down the important categories of life, which were business, financial, for us anyway, business, financial, uh, spiritual, family life, maybe relationships with friends. I'm having trouble remembering all of them. But the idea was to improve what he called the four S's. So those being survival, stability, success, and significance. And it was a self-assessment that he wanted us to do to where you check the box of where you think you are. He had set it up sort of to look like an Excel spreadsheet where the horizontal corresponded with the vertical. And so self-assessments are so valuable because you can see your progress. And so one of the things that I started doing in my journal at age 23, on December 31st every year, I would review the year and assess myself to see where I was. And so, for example, I was working a commission-only job, and I wasn't sure how I was going to pay the bills. And so, as far as my finances were concerned, I was in survival mode. But once I started making more money, and I had a roommate to pay half the mortgage, I was able to start investing. 
And so I had some disposable income, um, or at least income in excess of what I needed to live. And so I could see as I turned 24, December 20 or December 31st, 2004, I could see that I was much improved and felt good about checking the next box on that grid. So I went from survival to stability at least. And then success would be once I started acquiring houses and then significance would be once I was able to start really giving back, giving to charity and being of service to other people. And I know that you are very big. You were this way when I knew you when I was 11 years old. I got the sense that you didn't have an ego and that you were somebody who wanted to help people. Like you said, you helped your little brother and there was character to, to be a better ball player, but probably to be a better person too. And there was some carryover from that that you probably didn't even realize because I'm telling you that it influenced me because just interacting with you had an effect on me because I knew how much of a stud guy you were as a quarterback and the, the leadership that you had. Um, so how do you think about being of service to others as, at this point in your career? I reflect also, uh, I, I spend a lot of time and, and primarily because of EO pushed me outside of my comfort zone. I've been forced to reflect a lot of times on, on where I am, uh, where I was, where I am now and where I'm going. And, and um, one of the exercises was to create um, a one page strategic plan for, for myself and, and how I wanted to make it happen. And I think one of the things that, that I realized it popped into my head. It was kind of one of those aha moments is that, is that um, giving often results in getting. And um, I, I don't, I don't do it for the sake of getting you do it for the sake, or I do it for the sake of, of, of being a better person and feeling good about myself. Giving also creates happiness. There's, there's this, this uh, reciprocal feeling of happiness by giving. And so I, I do it really to be happy with myself and to, to be in touch with myself. But as in the go-giver, the, the law of receptivity, the key, the key effect of giving is, is to stay open to receiving. And, and oftentimes it comes back around and, and in ways that, that are so much more meaningful than, than money. So, so not that money is not important, but having you here, for instance, was, it was one of those things that I was willing to receive because it was, it's, it's amazing. I didn't realize I'd given anything, <laughs> but here you are and we're having this conversation. And uh, I have to tell you, I had goosebumps when you started talking about the, uh, the conversation. I, I, I don't look at myself as someone to be looked up to. I just try to be authentic and, and try to do my best every day. And so it, it seems that we have a lot in common. Indeed. Yeah. I think that the big money comes as a byproduct of being of service to people and helping to develop people. And you're right. You must be open to receiving, but it's, it's not the end goal. It, it just comes as a result of focusing on helping other people get what they want and solving their problems. And if you're someone who gets joy from giving there's nothing better because I have been around people who don't get joy out of giving and I worry about those people and they seem less happy and they usually have more of an ego and they're concerned what people think about them. 
And yeah, it, it's a shame. Sometimes it takes a an impactful event to change their perspective, but you've always had that perspective. Um, and yeah, it's so cool, man. I mean, as I said earlier, how often do people get a chance to talk to somebody who was about six or seven years older than them when they were 11 years old that had an impact and had an impact on them and, and you get to to talk about them. So, yeah, the fact that you got goosebumps, man, that fires me up because I got them, too. So <laughs> that's really cool, man. This group that you belong to, this forum, do you share intimate details about your life? Because I'm thinking in terms of the business, personal, financial, spiritual they all sort of, once you start working on one, everything affects everything else, right? So when you're working on your diet, you're going to sleep better. When you sleep better, you're going to wake up full of gratitude and, and wanting to, uh, you're going to have higher energy. And so you're going to be more productive that day. And you're going to be more willing to help others because sort of your cup runneth over. You know what I mean? Sure. And so you give back. Can you talk about that a little bit? The way it is designed in this forum is to um, is to speak in in gestalt gestalt, which is um, in experience sharing. So we we never tell each other what to do. We always share our own experiences and let the person or the others take away what they might from the conversation. It is designed to um, maintain the um, the utmost privacy. So anything said in the meeting remains within the group. We don't talk about it at dinner. We don't talk about it at uh, uh, during date night with our with our wives or, or spouses or significant others. We don't we don't have conversations outside of that group. We share we share what's called the five percent. That group knows maybe as much uh, of my intimate life as my wife, maybe more in some cases, more than my parents, more than my brother. Uh, who I who I have a really strong relationship with, so um, I've shared everything from you know family to to personal to business, and I trust. There's a, a ton of trust and respect within the group, and I it will stay with them. But you know I know things about them too in the same way, and so it's a it's a mutual respect, and it's just part of of the way the group works. But uh, being able to share those intimate details, those in, those details that you ne- can't necessarily share with with others. Um, didn't expect any kind of feedback, constructive feedback. Um, it's it's that go-to group. My, my wife actually tells me, and it's, it's funny, but uh, when she sees something's troubling me, she'll, she'll ask me, is it something I can help with? And um, sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. But sometimes she'll just lean over and say, I think you need to go talk to your forum. <laughs> it's it's that it's that impactful and she knows it. when i come home i'm always so much more energized we meet once a month so it provides that energy until the next meeting and there's always something else that comes up if you attack things when they're small sometimes you can prevent them from becoming big and uh learning from others mistakes versus learning from your own is is also nice <laughs> oh yeah sure yeah, it's so important for us to surround ourselves with people that we can share our intimate details. I, I think that even share problems like in your marriage, if you have a buddy that you can talk to about it, you'll find out quickly that other people have those same problems. And and that's so valuable to know because when you're, you know, you're having trouble in your in your marriage or at work or with your health, 
when you have a good buddy who's not going to judge you and who will listen and provide feedback and share, he's much more likely to share his intimate details when you give him your inf- intimate details. Um, it's just it's just so valuable to know that other people go through it. And I think that we have a society where so many people are depressed and anxiety ridden. And I think that the, the type of forum that you're talking about can be so helpful so that people can just get it off their chest. Being vulnerable in a safe place is, is a good thing. Yeah. You know, but having that safe place is, is the key to it all. And so in life, you don't run across the ability to have that safe place very often. Mm-hmm. But that safe place um, provides an avenue to to free yourself of a lot of stress, to to learn a lot of lessons without having directly having to be directly involved with it, but also to help you realize that, that, that we're all human. And so we're all going through a lot of the same things. And sometimes as you walk through life and you see the person walk by you that has a frown on their face or, or you can tell something's distressing them, you realize that you don't know what they're going through, you know? And so just, just having that awareness is a, is a good thing. Yeah. As they say, everybody's going through something that you know nothing about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think of humility too, as you're talking where, Humility is acknowledging the skills that you don't have and the weaknesses that you may have and, and being open to other people helping you because so many people are not that way. And saying I'm not sure what to do in a certain situation. I mean, how often do people nowadays say I don't know? It is so rare. I don't know if that's a function of having most of life's answers in your pocket at all times, right, with Google. You, you do, indeed. I, I, I think was told by a wise man once that we have two ears and one mouth. We should listen twice as much as we speak. Being an introvert, it's it's really difficult um, sharing, and and sometimes it's difficult listening. <laughs> you know, listening to those things, but not having an immediate response, listening with the intent of of understanding versus listening with the intent of responding, is something that's rare in this world. Is that one of the seven habits of highly effective people that you seek to under? What does it seek to seek first to understand, understand and then to be understood? Um, yeah, I think it goes along with um, with being interested uh, before trying to be interesting. You know, that's kind of the rules of the party. As an introvert, it's easy for me to follow. That rule is easy for me to follow because mm. I don't want to be interesting. I don't want to be the life of the party. I, I'd much rather sit and listen. To others, and so uh, that uh, that seven that one that one habit is um, is easy. It's easy easier for an introvert than it is for someone who's an extrovert. I'm the same way. I would I would rather listen. Um, but being an entrepreneur, you have to be that way, right? Because you're focused on providing value to other people, and in order to know what value you can provide, you have to be able to ask good questions and take genuine interest in them to where you want to help them solve their problems, right? And that's kind of what we were talking about earlier as a function or a byproduct of that is how you have success, right? We're sitting in this amazing study that I'm jealous. I really want one like this and this house. And it's it's all to me a reflection of how much value you and your wife have provide, provided to other people. Yeah. That- you know, though, as, as a, leader as a CEO, and I'm using my air quotes here, people expect you 
to tell them what to do. In a lot of cases, I, I find myself getting caught in that trap often. Um, EO has helped me kind of get past that. Um, I don't want to tell anybody what to do at work, you know, that they understand their job. I want them to take ownership. But sometimes when they're, they're a little bit lost or a little bit confused or there's an obstacle in the way, they, they'll come to you for advice. They, they want advice. They ask you, like, what, what do I need to do? And, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the, the best way to be a leader. Mm. The, the, the best way to be a leader is, is to listen. But you're expected to tell them what to do. Mm. Or, or that's the, the, I'm using air quotes again, that's the, the uh, presumption that your CEO or leader is, is going to be the person who just tells you to, well, you, you need to go out and tell them this, or you need to handle it this way. In, in essence, um, a lot of people don't like to be asked, well, what do you think is the best way to go about it? They just want to be told. They want to be told. It's, it's easy. And it's probably hard for you to make that shift because when you were in their situation, you didn't need to be told. Certainly. Yeah, I, I think that I was told in a lot of cases and I didn't believe that it was right. Mm. And so I, I, I question myself when I'm telling them that maybe the situation, that's not the right, that's not the right way to go about this situation. If I tell you to do it this way and it doesn't go well, will you trust me the next time you come to me and ask me the next piece of advice? Mm. Um, I've learned along the way that I, it's best to, 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 um, ask for experiences from multiple people, get a few experiences and to make my own decision. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm trying to help the others that work with me, work around me that are in my industry, follow that same, that same path. Mm. Let's shift back to books. books. Are you a, um, a fiction guy? It looks like you're more of a nonfiction guy. <laughs> There are a few nonfiction books that I enjoyed, uh, that I've enjoyed along the way, but mostly, mostly nonfiction. Um, when do you read? Uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I try to make time to read. I, I'm one of those people that I typically can't sleep past 5, 5.30 anyway. The rest of my family, uh, they, they'll sleep till, well, one of my sons will be up at six, but he's not in there to try to have a conversation. I think he's just up looking for breakfast. <laughs> so um, I have, typically have time to read in the morning. Yeah. Um, I set aside some time in the morning to read. And when I get back in the evening um, or if I finish my work in the evening or get done with something in the middle of the day and I just need a, a little time to, to be with myself, maybe I'll spend some time with myself. But reading a book is a good way to, to quiet the time. And, uh, I'll, I'll read in 15 minute stretches. Doesn't need to be an hour and a half. Doesn't need to be two hours. And I, 15 minutes provides me enough time to get, get through a, a few pages and, and, uh, be able to digest them and come back to them later. I, I tend to learn better anyway in short spurts than I do in long periods. So, um, morning, Middle of the day, just to take a break in the afternoon, just to unwind. I'll, I'll spend some time reading a book. Before we started recording, you had told me that one of your favorite books was Sapiens. Sapiens, indeed. I love Sapiens, too. And I found that 
people who are interviewed on podcasts when asked what their favorite book is. It seems like maybe a quarter of all respondents say that Sapiens is their favorite book. Why do you like that book so much? I found a couple of things intriguing, uh, one of which was his mention, uh, Harari's mention of imagined realities and the fact that our culture is created, our cultural myth is created around the imagined realities, um, whether it be corporations, states, religions, etc. And um, I mentioned a little bit earlier in the conversation that I like to think about the impossible. And um, these things are taught to us and, and repeatedly taught to us and have been passed down for long times. And so um, just breaking from that vision just breaking from that, that vision of, of being uh, taught to do it this way, questioning what's around us and, and understanding history uh, to widen our horizons. As, as he put it, we study history not to predict our future, but to widen our horizons mm-hmm. and, and to widen my horizon, not, not to just be stuck on what history is today and what they tell me history is going to be tomorrow. I don't want to live by that way. I want to, I want to understand it. I want to, I want to dig deeper. I want it to engage me. And it, and it does his, his idea of imagined realities and cultural myth seem to pique that interest. And it's, it's gotten me reading other books that, um, that have equally insatiated my, uh, my, my need to, to learn. Yeah, I love the book for the same reason. History is sort of a collection of stories, and he explains it well, where once we were able to organize as homo sapiens, we were able to rule the world, pretty much uh, make the world our domain. So prior to homo sapiens, we're talking thousands of years ago, but Neanderthals weren't able to organize in the way that that we are, we, we were able to, and he uses religion as an example. So once you can rally the troops under the banner of Christianity or, or some religion, then you can start to conquer other places. I learned so much from that book. And, and when I travel, I love to take that book with me when I travel. So for example, my wife and I were in Hong Kong about three years ago, and I asked if Hong Kong was British. I didn't know. And then what I came to learn from Sapiens is that Brit- Hong Kong was British until 1997 because in the 19th century, in 1840 to 42, they fought what was called the, the first opium war. And so the reason that happened is because British companies were shipping opium into China through the port at Hong Kong. And something like 10% of Chinese became addicts. Oh, my goodness. So the Chinese emperor passed a law and said you couldn't traffic drugs into the country anymore. And so Britain decided not to obey the law. And so China, the Chinese emperor, ordered to destroy all of the cargo, you know, set it on fire in the water. (laughs) And so... Britain didn't take kindly to that, and that's how the war happened. British, The British win the war, and as part of the treaty that was signed, the British uh, retained control of Hong Kong and signed a 150-year contract. And that's why Hong Kong was British, because they wanted to addict everybody to opium. I mean, it's just like, 
wow, I didn't know any of that. And had I not traveled to Hong Kong, I probably would have skimmed over that section of sapiens. But it has so many examples of, of that. Like another example would be like the Dutch. They once ruled the waters because or, or the trade routes because they were able to build trust with European banks so they could borrow money and then um, ship goods to the archipelago of Indonesia, which is the biggest has the most islands of any area in the world. And they started trading in that area. And at the time they were competing with the Spanish to um, take control of a lot of these trade routes. Well, the, the Spanish king kept getting himself involved in wars and squandering money. And so the European governments didn't trust them to pay back loans. And so therefore the Dutch took over a bunch of the trade routes. And I believe I, I learned this in this book, too, but that they set up shop in a little island in northeast United States that they called New Amsterdam. And the they had to fight the British and they had to fight Indians in that area. In order to maintain control of those waters. And eventually the British defeated them and renamed that island New York and there was a wall that the that the Dutch put up to fight on the southern tip to f to fight the British and the Indians. They put up a wall, and because of that wall, there's a street on the southern tip of Manhattan that is called Wall Street. Wall Street. Yeah, so just I would have known I wouldn't have known any of that if not for a book like Sapiens. It's so well written, so I completely understand why people get so much from it because there's so much history that. I would have never known. So the the, the strange fact is that uh, it's not strange at all. It's it's well known, but history is always written by the victors. Yeah, and so you 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 tend to forget about the history that is not written. Mm -hmm. But the the other side of the story, there's always two sides, and so you always hear the one side, mm -hmm. the victor's story. Sure. And so we we only learn a part of history. Yeah, he talks about that too, how the losers sometimes are brainwashed into believing that they were part of the victors. Correct. <laughs> yeah, Correct. it's a fascinating book. So I recommend everybody check it out. <laughs> um, what Do you have another book that you, you recommend to people? I would say The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It was one of the first books I read when I got interested in reading again. And uh, it's it I think it's, it just teaches lessons about life. I think um, in any case, being proactive, uh, Beginning with the end in mind, I think a lot mm -hmm. of people forget that if they don't know where they're going, you can't uh, you can't plan your day. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can go 100 miles an hour, but if I'm going in the wrong direction, you know, <laughs> it's not very good, right? So, mm -hmm. um, always having that plan, and then I I seek to first understand and be understood, and ultimately sharpen the saw. Sharpening the saw is one of those things that most people forget as well. I believe mm -hmm. I I, I um, often talk to my kids about you know stopping getting off of their their electronics and and sitting with the family and having dinner so we can discuss what it is they're uh they're doing today and and how they're going to do it tomorrow and all the things that go around just reflecting yeah you know i think all of us spend so much time on the go we forget to reflect and, and forget how how uh, ineffective it is when the saw the saw is not sharpened are you a, a prayer or a meditation or a meditation for sure? I, I would say that I don't pray much. I I'm a spiritual person, but uh, 
but I'm like everything else I read about. I'm I'm interested in religion, so I've read about quite a few different religions because I'm um, Catholic by I was brought up Catholic, raised Catholic, and am a, 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 somewhat of a practicing Catholic. But uh, but I I'm, I'm more spiritual than anything. But meditation is one of those things that I've just recently taken um, in, into consideration. Um, it only happened when when I realized that I I I met a monk. Quite frankly, I met a monk. His name is Don Dapani. Mm. He spoke. Uh, he lives up in New York, but he he was. He's an ex-monk, I guess you could say. He, he was. Um, he taught me about awareness, and I, I didn't understand that that we were so unaware. And uh, for our seminar with him, um, amongst my EO group, matter of fact, um, made me realize that that I was missing a lot in life, and um, sometimes I just needed to to be within myself um, and be aware of, of what was going on, be aware of my attitude, uh, focus a little better. And um, so I decided that I would try meditation. So I've been, I've been working on that for about six months now. And at the beginning, I'll tell you, it was extremely difficult to sit still within myself and, and make it happen. For more than a minute, you know, and and so now I can I can go thirty minutes, and sometimes want to want to be there an hour, but it's it's taken time to understand the practice and to fully benefit. I don't think I'm fully benefiting from it, but I think I'm I'm benefiting from it on a daily basis. I I I stop myself in the middle of the day and during conversations even, and, and realize that I need to bring things back. Mm. I need to I need to focus my awareness on one subject. So I've gotten I've gotten better at listening to people and understanding people, wanting to understand people without being distracted by the the bird that's flying by me or the the car that's driving the other way. You know, I I, I, I focus my attention on who I'm talking to a little better, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been able to also focus my my I've been self-aware i guess so i i can understand or i better understand what my body's feeling or, or what i'm feeling uh, if i'm tired i know it i've i've taken the time to understand um where my mind's going when it's going and to bring myself back into the situation i totally agree with you i think meditation i i too meditate and when i get away from it it's hard to get back into it so to give you a quick example, my wife and I floated. We, we went to a float tank, and that is meditation on overdrive, pretty much. You're, you're floating as if you're in the Dead Sea, which I actually did one time uh, because it's heavy salt content or I whatever. I did as well. You, you floated? I did indeed. Okay, so had you floated before you started meditating or after? No, I floated in the Dead Sea. Oh, no, shit. Sure. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very cool. No, I have not floated. So tell me more about this. I'm yeah. interested. So... You, you lay in a tank for about an hour and my wife is very much like me. She can be alone without a phone for hours. And I think it's the way that she was raised, but it's something that I really value in her. 
and I, I talk about quite a bit how when we're together, it's like a completed solitude. And you probably noticed just from visiting with her today, she's very poised. She's very, uh, I don't know, almost zen-like, but I really admire that about her. So anyway, we went to this float tank and when she got out of it, she said it seemed like it lasted forever and it wouldn't end. And I was like, well, it seemed like 10 or 20 minutes to me, even though it was an hour. And I totally attribute it to the fact that I was, I had been meditating for about a year. And so it changes your perception of time. And one of the things, so were you doing TM, Transcendental Meditation? Um, no, no, no. Vipassana? Yeah, just, I. so I haven't gotten into any specific time. All I'm trying to do at this point is, is be aware of myself. And so the meta, I've actually been using Headspace. Yeah. Um, and it's been bringing me through some different uh, courses, if you will. Sure. And so I haven't really gotten into anything more specific than that. Okay. Yeah, I started with Headspace also, and it helps me to understand the difference between thought and feeling, which once you get really aware of that, you start to notice how unaware other people are. And I think it's like anything in life. Once you really start to benefit from something, you start to share it with others. And then it starts to sound like a religion, which is which is probably not a good thing because people are so turned off by others who wear religion on their sleeve, you know, Bible thumpers, they call them or whatever. So I'm almost hesitant to talk about uh, people's experience with meditation because of the way it can be off-putting to people. I really think that it became in vogue because of all of the distractions that we have where people bounce from checking email to checking Facebook back to email, um, work on something, and, and you're never concentrated. I think that with, you know, so I think it really started in Silicon Valley when it became really popular. And of course it was, there's, there are apps like Headspace and Calm that have become really popular. And those were probably started in California also. But I also noticed, and you were just there, you may have noticed this too. There's not a lot of religion out on the West coast. And I think in a lot of ways, meditation takes the place of religion and my experience, and, and tell me if your experience is different, but meditation is more like listening and prayer is more like talking. Certainly. I, I, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. And, and that's what makes it difficult. We don't often listen. So, <laughs> so, so meditation is, is a little bit difficult at the beginning. I also agree with your, your um, Bible thumping yeah. uh, comment. I, I there are a few things I do, and um, um, meditation is one of them. But when I talk about it, it's it's almost as if people are turned away. By yeah. It. Oh, I know. They may have fast forwarded through this, but I'm glad it, it's going to lead us, I think, into more a, a deeper area because you seem like an introspective guy. And I know just from following you on Facebook and stuff, you and I like a lot of the same things. And um, so I'm curious, when is the last time that you thought that you might not be good enough? Oh, wow. Um, this morning? <laughs> uh, I, I, think, I think that regularly. I, I think it's part of, of just being a humble person. I, I think that um, it's not that I don't think I'm good enough. I think that other people do things better. Mm. And so I'm not trying to um, be 
as good as the Joneses, if you will. But I, but I, I see people do things and I strive to be as good as them in certain aspects of their life. But, you know, I want to be as good as them, as good as this person in one aspect of life and as good as this other person in another aspect of life and as good as this person in another aspect of life. And so I try to take all those things in, but in any instance, I'm not as good as them in this and I'm not as good Give as Give me an example. I could say that about business. Um, I, As I mentioned, my, my EO group, I'm around a lot of business owners and I, I see some um, who are extremely successful, extremely successful um, by the measure of, of profitability they bring in. So I don't necessarily believe that profits are the only success metric, but as it pertains to profitability, they are doing things much better than me, whether they're industry, whether it's their industry or whether it's them particularly, but um, let's talk about industry. So some people have decided to get into the, into the tech world and um, by nature, these companies either boom or bust. And so we, we I think um, Wall Street has made it quite clear that they're interested in, in new technologies all around. And some of these companies have gone public, for instance, without even having uh, a profitable um, P&L. But I look at some of these things and I, and I think that sometimes maybe I've gotten into the wrong industry. And some of my some of these some of my peers have gotten into industries that propel them in into ultimate success, whether they're profitable or not profitable. And so other other of the the people, some of the other people that are in my in my EO group are extremely profitable. They're not in industries that are tech related or anything that's that's um, really famous uh, or or not famous, but not. Um, Let's call it glamorous. My, my industry is not glamorous. And some of their industries are not glamorous, but their non-glamorous industry has turned out to be extremely profitable, whereas mine may not be as profitable as theirs. Mm. And so uh, I look at business on a daily basis and think, well, you know, I'm just not up to par. Like they're, they're above me. Yeah, there's this constant tug between growth and enough. And I think the EO groups is, is so valuable for you to hear other stories and see where you may come up short. But it, isn't it so valuable? Like for me to have your example as an 11 year old, isn't it valuable to have examples to strive for, but then there's a balance between that tug of growth and enough. I, I, when I was in software, Many software salespeople talked about how they should be in pharmaceuticals, that they have buddies in pharmaceuticals who are killing it. People in pharmaceuticals say, I should have been in medical devices. Those guys are killing it. The medical device people are saying that I should have been in insurance. And it goes, it's like a grass is greener type of thing. And so, so I totally can relate to what you're talking about. 
I, I wonder if everybody experiences that. The Avon lady probably thinks she should be selling Mary Kay because she's got somebody who's killing it. And, and so you start to think, well, I'm not enough. I think part of it is that is my upbringing. And, and, and as, an, as an athlete, when you were younger, probably had the same mentality. So as good as you were on the field, regardless of what sport it was, you couldn't settle for good enough. You had to be better. Yeah. And I, I think that mindset has carried forth through through life. Yeah. You know, I am I a good enough husband? Yeah. Do do I do I do all of those things that I should um with my wife? Am I am I really a good listener? Do I do I surprise her enough with little things, little gifts here and there? Do we do we do I initiate conversation enough? You know, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, and so I sometimes I, I look at it and say, well, I, I could do better mm, as a husband. Um, but what about being a father? Am I doing the right things for my kids? Is it right to let them play on their iPad or whatever? You know, I mean. I didn't have that when I was young mm-hmm. and I'm, I, I feel like I turned out okay. Yeah. Um, should I, should I remove them from that or let them be inclusive with their friends? If, if they don't have that, then they're, they're kind of outcasts. And so am I a good enough father? Am I really spending the time to research and, and understand if I'm a good enough father? There are other fathers out there that I think are much better fathers than I am, but strive to be. I strive to be better every day. If I'm better than I was yesterday, I think I did all right. But I never feel like I'm I'm the best or, or I'm good enough. When's the last time you were upset with yourself? Once again, that's a that's a fairly often that happens fairly often. So I, I keep track of of a few things um, on a daily basis. I um, I try to maintain a, a keto diet. I try to. Um, maintain a certain caloric intake. I try to um, exercise in a, in a high intensity interval training fashion every day. I try to meditate every day. Um, I try to read a little bit every day and I'm, I'm, I'm working on doing um, a foreign language. I'm trying to do that a little bit every day. And so I keep a little journal and you put a check mark or an X next to it, whether I do it every day. And you know, um, some days I'm great at it. Uh, yesterday I wasn't. And so, yeah, I felt like I didn't measure up yesterday. I didn't do those things I needed to get done. So do you put it on yourself? Do you, I know you're a guy who celebrates success, right? So um, is that important to you to celebrate success and put it on yourself when you, when you don't reach your, your goals or your standards? Oftentimes I think, um, I don't uh, celebrate enough. I think I'm, I'm more of a pusher than I am a celebrator. Um, whether I should be or not, I don't know. There's, there's, there's studies that show that you need to celebrate um, and that that reward triggers um, motivation the next time around. And uh, maybe I need to do a little better job with the celebrating part of it. I'm just a pusher, though. I'm going to push. I'm going to push myself to to do it better tomorrow, do it. If I didn't get it done today, I, I'm try to have a sharp memory and try to move to tomorrow and say, well, tomorrow I'm going to accomplish all of these things. 
And so I, I, I tend not to celebrate quite as often as I should. My celebration, quite frankly, is wine. Really? Yeah, which, yeah. So, which you're having, you had a glass this morning. I, I had a glass, well, it was, it was noon, so I'm <laughs> no. okay with that. I told my wife on the way here, she was asking, like, do we, do we drink in the morning here? I said, if there's anywhere in the world that you're going to start <laughs> drinking before noon, it's South Louisiana. <laughs> it was quarter to 12, but we, <laughs> we, so we had a glass. But, you know, um, so I, I, I do, like I said, try to maintain the keto diet, and I try to, I try to um, maintain my, my calorie restriction limits. But... I do celebrate in the evening time by having a glass of wine or two. Mm. And so that actually sometimes gets me over my cal caloric limit yeah. or, or maybe maybe gets me close to my, my keto level. But that is my celebration for myself on a daily basis for, for doing those things that I have listed in my book. And is that your sugar intake for the day? For the most part, yeah. Really? yeah. I'll get 20 grams of sugar from my, from my, my wine intake. I, I try to stay under 36 grams of sugar. Yeah. Do you have a, a certain threshold? Yeah, pretty much 40. 40, 40 grams is kind of that high end. I, I try to maintain somewhere in that same neighborhood between 30 and 35 if I can. I can get up to 40 typically and, and maintain ketosis. So I'm pretty good there. So you do keto diet, you do it at all times or do you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been doing it for about a year and a half now. And pretty much uh, I'd say once a month, I'll, uh, I'll veer from it on one day. And it won't be a, I'm going to eat four pizzas. You know, it's just a, I, I'll jump out of ketosis because I want to have a, a bowl of gumbo with rice. Yeah. Like that's just, it, I love it. I'm going to have it one day and I'm going to set myself aside or I may be craving a hamburger, you know, so I'll have a hamburger with a bun <laughs> on that day. You know, it's yeah. just one of those things. But for the most part, uh, it's a regular, it's a regular thing. I'll, I'll, I stay in ketosis. Ninety-five uh, percent of the time, ninety-eight percent of the time. And you're pretty jacked. How is it? How has the keto diet impacted your life? Um, I don't know yet. Really, so, it's been a year and a half. And so I'll tell you this: my um, my cholesterol has been high um, over the past few years, and as I started the keto diet, my cholesterol numbers got better. Um, I find that I've got uh, more focus, more energy, and I don't end up with the highs and lows of the, the sugar intake. So that part of it has been noticeable because I've gotten the measurements on the cholesterol and I've gotten the, the, uh, the effects or I've received the effects of, of the, the lack of sugar intake, the insulin rush, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, Long term, though, uh, it's obviously it, it hasn't been long enough to, to really determine. But as I understand it from my studies, keto diet can positively help uh, positively affect the health span. And so that's that's why I'm doing it. It's really long term health span. Do you think your kids motivate you to having I don't have kids yet. Yes. But once you have kids. Does that inspire you to improve your health and increase your lifespan and, and all that? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, I, I think everybody kind of gets it out of their system earlier on. You know, you, you have a good time staying up really late and 
hanging out with your friends, having a bunch of drinks and, mm-hmm. you know, waking up the next morning with a, with a hangover, although you, you typically recover fairly well when you're younger. Um, part of it is that I, I don't necessarily need that in my life anymore because I, I don't want to have that recovery period. It takes longer. But, but a big part of it is kids. You know, the fact that I want to be around and watch them grow and see what kind of people they become. Uh, hopefully see my grandkids and if I'm lucky, see great grandkids. Um, but not for the sake of seeing them, for the sake of being healthy enough to be around and interact with them. Mm. So lifespan and health span are two things that people don't um, quite grasp. In my my experience, I think a lot of people just say, oh, I want to live till I'm 100. Well, if you're incapacitated from the time you're 60 to your time you're 100, do you really want to live to 100? No, I don't. You know, I, I hope my health span and my lifespan are are pretty close cut. How often do you think about death? Um, I think that I'm going to cheat it fairly often. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I my father's family did not. Uh, they don't have a really good long life. Mm. And uh, my mother's side of the family has a longer life, but but as I read more and understand more, and my biology background tells me that genetics is a big part of it, but but I I truly believe that we can influence a lot of what goes on with our daily habits, and so I I'm doing I'm trying to do more things to expand um, expand my my health uh, for the longevity of my my life. That's awesome. I don't have good genetics on, on with my grandfathers either. Both of them lived to 74. And so I'm more than halfway there. So I'm, I'm constantly aware of that too and try to increase my health span, as you call it. So I really think it starts with health and fitness. I, I think if you work out, you're less likely to go to McDonald's. I think if you work out, you're, you're going to be more energized. You're going to be more likely to pick up a book. And if you pick up a book and you read before you go to bed, then you're more likely to sleep better. And a lot of people believe that if you put something into your subconscious while you're sleeping, you'll wake up a little wiser the next day than when you went to bed. So I'm a believer in all of that. How much sleep do you get every night? I try to get uh, try to get eight hours. I, wow. Sometimes I, I don't uh, quite make that. Um, but I, I told you earlier, I, I try to I get up like a, naturally. I get up between five and six sometime. And um you know, if I can get to bed between nine and 10, I'm, I'm doing well. So walk me through the day of a CEO at QSM. You wake up at five or six, do you eat breakfast? Whether I want to or not, I'm, I'm doing some intermittent fasting. It's, it's really because on the keto diet, I'm just not, um, I'm not that hungry. Mm -hmm. I don't feel the need to eat. So when I wake up in the morning, I have my glass of water. Let's say it's 5.30 when I wake up, I, I will typically um, fix myself a cup of coffee after my glass of water. I'll sit with a cup of coffee. I'll probably read a hard copy book, read a, read a chapter, probably underline or take some notes while I'm, while I'm reading it, just things that strike me at the time. I'll move from, from that to, uh, to a workout. So I'll, I have a, a home gym. Um, I'll, I'll go to my home gym. I, I do uh, the high intensity interval training. So my workout typically takes no more than 30 minutes. 
How many days a week? I, I try to get in five days a week. Pretty much every week I'll make three. On occasion, I'll make five or six if I have a good week. Um, but travel and, and work just sometimes interferes. So um, I, I'll get my workout in. And believe it or not, I meditate best after my workout. Mm. And so I get my workout in. I get the blood moving. I'm a little bit winded. But I'll, I'll do some stretching, try to wind down. And then I'll on in my in my workout room, I'll, I'll, I'll meditate for, you know, anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes, depending on what the day gives or what I have going on. I typically have a, a management huddle in the morning around eight o'clock. That's uh, all my management team gets on a five, 10 minute phone call so we can catch up. Um, so we, we're all on the same page as the day goes on. From that point, I've got my direction and I know where I'm going. Mondays and Tuesdays, I, I keep for me time. So um, I'll typically spend some me time um, reflecting on the end so that I can have some beginning. So I'll think about the next quarter, the next six months, the next year, whether it be personal or family or business. Um, I typically spend every Monday doing some of those drills. I may not complete it. If I don't, I'll, I'll pick it up the next Monday and kind of pick up where I left off. Uh, I'll typically read a book, business book, that tries to try to give me some guidance about some particular issue, whether it be sales or, or marketing or or management or people. I'll just read um, something along those lines to help focus me better. Favorite business book? Oh, favorite business book, I would say... Probably the personal MBA. Mm, I haven't read that. I don't have an MBA, by the way. So my, my degree is in biology. So I have only business background I have is watching my father as an entrepreneur go through the struggles of business mm. and now going through entrepreneurs organization. Other than that, I've got no business background. And so I found the personal MBA to be um, insightful, helped uh provide me with some clarity on on a few topics um, that I maybe didn't know. So I learned the financials along the way, but how to how to better understand the the um, the organizational structure or how to um, manage salespeople or you know those kinds of things are in that book in one way or another. Who do you most admire? Say my father-in-law has been a has been a, a a guiding, he's someone I admire in his business acumen and in his his family, um, his family leadership. Did you seek out a woman that came from a solid family? I would like to say that maybe I did, but um, I don't think I did. I think I think the solid family in her seeked me out. Oh, is that think, sort of like an, a, you attract what you become type of way? I, I believe so. I, I think that, you know, I didn't go out and look for someone who had the family values that she has or, or that had the, the family that she does. I think it was just innate in her. And so when I met her, I recognized immediately that, that she's the kind of person I'd want to be around. And I, I have a feeling that that happens a lot with some of my friends as well. Like I, I tend to hang out with people that have that same family dynamic. 
doesn't mean I don't hang out with others that don't, but, but I seem to be attracted to those. I seem to have better, easier conversations. Yeah. So we're on this podcast now, which is an extension of my blog. And I hoped that when I started writing, that my writing would attract me to like-minded people. And that's what it's done. I've met people from around the world who think like I do. And that's one of the greatest joys. And one of the biggest motivators for me to keep writing is because I've found that the, the caliber of my friends group has increased as a result of my writing. So I, I kind of can relate to what you're talking about. And here I am sitting with a stud guy. So, uh, yeah, man, it's just a lot of growth there. And it sounds like you're a growth minded person who tries to surround yourself with with high caliber people. Am I right? Yeah. They say you become like the the, the five people you hang around most. And so, um, I, look, I've got tons of friends at all levels, um, but on a daily basis, I'm I'm, I tr- I'm trying to hang around people that are smarter than me, or I am hanging around people that are smarter than me. And uh, I feel like I'm, by osmosis, becoming smarter. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good thing. Absolutely. You've talked about being a better husband or wondering if you are a good enough husband. If you were to write a book about how to be a better husband, what would you title the book or what would one of the chapters be called? It wouldn't be a good title, but I definitely think there'd be a chapter on on open communication. Um, communication is key. Do you find men and women communicate differently? And very, very differently. Differently. Don't you wish that there was some, at least one course in school that was dedicated to that? Because what's more important than being able to communicate with your significant other? How is that not taught in school? As, as preparation for the rest of your life. I, I have to believe that that would be a wonderful course if the right person taught it. I <laughs> Unfortunately, um, there isn't a class, but the five love languages provides a, a great learning opportunity for anyone. I know that it, the five love languages is often a book that's recommended by therapists when there's problems in marriages. I... I would suggest reading it and understanding it and practicing it way before there's a problem. Mm. It's 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 like waiting till you can't hit a baseball to find a coach. No, no, <laughs> no. You 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 find a coach early on and you learn the techniques and you practice the techniques mm. so that 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 never happen. And and with marriage, com- with communication being so so important. Um, the love five love languages is a is a wonderful place to start. You're the second person to mention the five love languages on my podcast. And I asked the last guy who mentioned it what his love language was. What what is yours? You know, I'm a guy, right? So physical touch is definitely uh something that we all we all uh, well, I think everybody wants. I don't know, maybe it's just me. It's my love language, but I w- I would say equally though that quality time is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily need um, to, it gifts. I'm not a gift person. I don't necessarily want gifts. I don't necessarily need a whole lot of words of affirmation, although nobody hates I love you. It, the conversation around the love languages is that everybody exhibits the need for all five at some point. Some are just more pronounced. And right. so the, the two that I find more pronounced for me are physical touch and quality time. Mm. I'm definitely physical touch. 
when I was dating, so I've only been married a year, but when I was looking for someone to spend the rest of my life with, when someone would touch me, that, that was better than anything. Like you said, a gift or uh, words of affirmation, none of that was on my radar. And it's hard when you're dating because it's not like you're going to share your love language on your second date, yeah. you know. But if they were to touch me, I like I was so drawn to that. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it's definitely my number one. What is your wife's? Um, she's she's a quality a quality time. I think we kind of both fit. I think she's more quality time than than physical touch. Um, but she's those two are strong in her as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think maybe that's another reason we were um, drawn, so drawn to each other. Cool. All right. I'm going to ask you some fun, quick questions. Your answers don't have to be quick, but how old are you? 45. 45. Who is your favorite 80s band? I listen to so much music. I have. I, that's a really difficult question. I'll tell you what, though. Growing up, one of the first um, cassette tapes I owned was Rat. <laughs> nice. <laughs> You had a big tape deck. I remember going yeah, to your room as yeah. a kid. Fun stuff. I bought it with my own money. I worked for, for weeks, months, months, trying to save up enough money to buy that damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what? How old are your kids? Uh, 14, 13, and 10. Okay. So your daughter is? 13. A 14-year-old daughter, a 13-year-old son, and 10-year-old son. At what age is your daughter allowed to date? So she is currently dating. Um, although I don't know if she totally understands the, um, the details of dating, however, probably better so than I think. Anyway, we we are, we are experimenting with allowing them to see each other on occasion. Mm. So it's a, it's a difficult transition for a father. I would imagine. Yeah. Well, that's why I asked the question. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite biography? Leonardo da Vinci was was amazing. Why? Um, I was intrigued. He he was such an, an amazing person. Mm-hmm. He, he he did so many things. One of the things that stands out to me in the book was he had the ability to see ripples in a stream in such detail and draw them in such detail. Um, he was able to capture that with a with a glance. He was able to, in a single glance, capture the fact that a, a mosquito hawk or a dragonfly had one set of wings up and one set of wings down. And I don't know if anybody ever stopped to look at a dragonfly fly by your head, but to notice that kind of detail in such a short glimpse, to me he was something was different about him and I, i'm intrigued by that and his knowledge of so many different subjects as well was was also fairly intriguing if tomorrow you were given the opportunity to go to the moon and it would only cost you let's say twenty thousand dollars but you'd be away from your family for six months would you go right now Right now. It's on my bucket list. Really? To go to the moon? Awesome. It's on my bucket list. Nice. We haven't talked a lot about financials, but do you invest outside of your, do you have a retirement plan at work? Certainly. So we offer a simple plan to our employees at work, uh, for which we're 
investing in as well. Outside of that, however, um, I've invested in the stock market. I've got a real estate holding company with uh, a couple of other partners. I, as of late, started um, looking into startup companies and investing you know, anywhere from 1% to 10% in, in startup companies just to be a little, uh, gamble a little bit. I think you should, especially if you have a, uh, this is what I advocate typically to younger folks, but if you have a rising income, that is when you need to take some chances. And I really benefit for, benefited from taking chances on stocks like Netflix or, you know, I don't want to go through my portfolio, but if it's less than 10% of your net worth, take a little risk. The upside is huge. I know a lot of people say don't invest in Bitcoin, but if you have you know, less than a fraction of 1% that you want to invest in a something risky that has asymmetrical upside. So Bitcoin, in all likelihood, is going to go to zero. But there is a chance that it goes to 100,000. So I have no problem with my coaching clients taking a little risk. As long as they're doing responsible things with their money, no problem with that. You know, if the net worth is solid and you track it quarterly, Hell yeah, take a little risk. So I'm, I'm impressed with that. So you're doing like angel investing. You take one to ten percent of your income or your net worth, which no, which... it's one percent, one to ten percent of the company. So oh, okay. But but these companies are startups, so you know their valuation is questionable. Always I've invested a little bit in a company called Joyful, um, which is a it's a tech startup platform. It's uh, it serves as a an experience curator, so platform that serves as a concierge, let's say. Currently, it's in the city of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It's not hasn't gone any further than that, but we're building out uh, building out the platform, and hopefully, we'll be in multiple other cities and or at uh, at a few hotels and or other destinations. So it's um, it's fun, it's exciting. It's got, like you said earlier, it's got it's it's not really absorbing a whole lot of my net worth, um, and the upside is huge. It could go to zero tomorrow, but it, the upside is huge. So Risking a little bit there. I've uh, recently been involved in a, a little restaurant. I, I promised myself that I was never gonna in never gonna be a part of a restaurant group, uh, only because I know the the perils of restaurants, especially in and around the New Orleans area. It's so competitive and so difficult. But had a, a, an interesting concept called El Cucoy. It's a it's a, a Mexican street food restaurant, uh, kind of open air for the most part, with a little tequila bar and um, New Orleans. Perfect place for that kind of that kind of get up. So we're uh, doing a little bit there, and and then uh, we're weighing real estate deals every day with our little investment group, uh, real estate investment group, primarily on commercial property here and around the Baton Rouge area. But it's um, we're, we're looking to expand. We're visiting with ideas every day, and one of these days, uh, one of the ideas is gonna it's gonna hit a home run. So just we continue to to work on that all the while continue to build wealth on the other end. I love that. That's another thing that I advocate for with my coaching clients. So I have a consulting slash coaching business that I have on Mondays where we have weekly calls and we get their financial house in order. And I tell them to be aware, pay attention to your industry. Every day you're going to work and you are using certain certain technologies, or if you're a doctor, you're using medical devices. And I tell them that you have insight that you don't realize that you have. 
So when I was in software starting in 2007, everyone was using salesforce.com. No matter who you interviewed with, that was the service they were using. Why would you not take a fraction of your income and take a little chance on a salesforce.com? If everybody is Netflixing and chilling, take a little chance on Netflix if you're in technology. So I have no problem with that. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge proponent of that, in fact. So I love to hear what you're saying. So you're in the QSM company that you work for. You have access to real estate deals that you probably wouldn't have if you worked at a hospital. Is that fair to say? I, I would say that's fair. Yeah. Certainly. I am aware of developments and I am uh, on the front end and it, uh, it, it benefits us on occasion. Certainly. What are you most grateful for? I think I'm most grateful for my health. Um, there are a lot of people out there that just aren't uh, aren't blessed with good health for one reason or the other, and um, you know, it's kind of the 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 ground floor. It, without the health, nothing else gets built on top of it, and so been fortunate to be to be healthy for the just thus far in my life in all aspects yeah if you don't have health nothing else matters that's right right when you're in physical pain all you want is to end that pain yeah i love what you said there because also you're expressing gratitude for something you work at and that's huge too yeah i never really thought about it like that but i guess you're right yeah well, man, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, if people want to connect with you, how can they find you? Um, they can contact me by email. Um, jlusky, J-L-O-E-S-K-E, at Gmail. Um, you can search Joshua Lusky on Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, friend me. Reach out to me. Um, my... Uh, Business address is qualitysitework.com. If you're interested to find out more about QSM, qualitysitework, no S on the end.com. Very cool. This was, this was awesome, man. I appreciate you doing this. Thank, thank you, Brad. It's been nice. Cool. Friends, thank you for listening. I know you could be doing anything in the world, but you chose to spend your time with us, and I really appreciate it. So thank you. Um, if you want to follow my adventures, I am on Twitter at man underscore overseas and also on Instagram at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.